Hello. And welcome. Some more people for you to do it. (laughs) (laughs) To Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of me and my buddy's living wife. My dead buddy. (laughs) (laughs) That was my buddy's dead wife. (sighs) There's a a lot of sexual chemistry in this book. Mm hmm. But? What's this guy's appeal? <laughs> Why are these women so into him? <laughs> I I was going to say that it is, I mean, I I learned after reading it that this is like based on the life of his uncle. Mm-hmm. But I was like, interesting, you made a book about a writer who <laughs> has sex <laughs> with beautiful movie stars. Non-stop, seemingly. And then, there, and he still found a place to fit in the like. He's writing the comic books uh, <laughs> thing as well. He's writing for the funnies. Yeah, that that was my big note complaint question mark. It was just like, why does every woman in this book want to have sex with Charlie? A normal to like <laughs> subpar boring guy. <laughs> At, I'd say at best he's normal. He is like, I guess it's like I can fix him. <laughs> but I it's guess. like, he's like a raging alcoholic. He yeah. has PTSD from what he saw in the war. The, yeah, I want to talk about this also. <laughs> <laughs> he is just, I guess like he's, well... I mean, I feel like he probably has the capacity to be abusive. Uh, yeah, I feel like everyone in this book has the capacity to be abusive, pretty much. Sure. Isn't that just, like, life when you think about it? Yeah. And just, like, I don't know. I guess the closest thing we get to an explanation is, like, movie stars are the ultimate aphrodisiac. And it's, like, everyone around the Hollywood is just so horny that even this writer is sure to, like, secure the bag, so to speak. But also, like, secures the bag with, like, the leading ladies. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> Some guys it. have all the luck. And, like, he never even met, like, he's just like, this is normal. Like, there yeah. was, first there was a big movie star and I slept with her. And then there was another movie star and I slept with her. Like, I guess there's some sort of implication that it's, like, our mutual brokenness and, like, disillusionment brings mm-hmm. us together. But... That's about it. I guess so. The Fade Out we're talking about. Good book. Fade Out Game Strong. Good book. Um, <laughs> That's nothing. <laughs> it's too late. I've said it. Good book. I agree. Good, good book. I wish it didn't follow the least interesting character, but good book nonetheless. Sure. <laughs> you mean Charlie or Maya? <laughs> Charlie, I think. Uh, Charlie. Charlie's all right. Charlie, yeah, they're fine. He's fine. So the fade out. We are, of course, covering the work of Ed Brubaker. This is another collaboration with his buddy boy, Sean Phillips. So this is the first thing that they do after they... Did you get new glasses? No. Okay. This is the first (laughs) thing they do after they sign this contract, which we have alluded to probably like five different times. Yes. This exclusive contract with Image where they can make anything they want and it will get made. And so they were like, we can't do this. This isn't commercial enough. But then 
Which when they, they're like, we have again, this contract. Like, I just don't believe. I don't know. Maybe I maybe I have an overinflated sense of what like publishers think of the Brubaker Phillips collaboration, but I just can't picture a scenario in which he took this book or like they took this book to like Dark Horse Oni, Image, IDW, like every independent publisher who would like let them retain their creators like rights. And we're like, who wants this book the most that they wouldn't all be like, me, me, me. We've talked about the idea of there being a book or something called IDW, right? Um, I like made I, a Claudius. joke. I made a joke to that effect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, is the long and the short of it. Which you poo pooed at the time. I have to note. I don't think that's true. It is one hundred percent true. I know because I listened to it while editing it and laughed so hard and was like, "Some people have no taste." <laughs> DW is really one of the funniest characters. It was the the joke. I think the joke that I conceived of was that instead of saying "Hey DW," Arthur would say "I DW." Yeah, which was like also as in I Claudius. (laughs) I just pictured DW like hand on chest on the cover playing claudius in like a stage production of i claudius and the episode is called idw yeah (laughs) of course that episode (laughs) basically exists now (laughs) i what is what is so funny is it her there's something that is just like inherently like visibly or, or like you know yeah, like she looks funny. Like aesthetically I, funny. Yeah, I do think that she has. <laughs> this is a crazy sentence, and I want to acknowledge that before I say it. I think that DW from Arthur has a certain Falstaffian uh, comedy. <laughs> <to her>. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. That, that, like, she just is like a quintessential sort of like fool character, and like her hubris is funny. Her, like, I, she's, uh, she's funny. And they kind of underrated. I guess pe- I think people have sort of come around to her later. She, yeah, I think that when you're like a kid watching Arthur, especially if you have younger siblings, she gets a bit of like a Caillou effect where it's like, right? Why is DW always messing up Arthur's life? Or like Dee Dee from Dexter's Lab as well, even though she's sure. older. There is a, there is that like, why is this annoying sibling on the show? I just want to watch like the main character. <laughs> succeed and be happy (laughs) arthur's he's not the worst but he's not the best let's put it that way too true i'm just sending you dw pictures i perceive that (laughs) she's dressed up like arthur it's really funny um did you know that you know about this like series finale where they go to the future yeah and he's a comic book creator and he looks like scott mcleod yeah and dw is a cop I did not know that. Unexpected turn for her. I guess because like she's a brat. She's like all about the rules. I guess. I don't know. Uh, and has she come she's... out? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> you joke, but that I, would be good. I don't really joke. <laughs> <laughs> you think? Do you know? I guess. 
<laughs> Never mind. Her, her relationship with Nadine is interesting, is what I'll say. And you know, <laughs> Mister Mister Ratburn walked so that Nadine could run. <laughs> I mean, so that DW could run. <laughs> Nadine Flumbergast. Uh, <laughs> her full, according to the Arthur Wiki, her full name is given in Reed and Flumbergast. Uh, okay. LLC. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, This is the Darth Vader's hobbies of this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to just look at those again? Just more. (laughs) Darth Vader's hobbies? No. It's number Darth Vader's hobbies. Well, his number one hobby is torturing his enemies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, we cannot talk okay, about Darth Vader's hobbies. We won't do it again, but I do just need you to know that his number two hobby is manipulating and force choking his officers when they fail him. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, (laughs) no one on earth thinks this is as funny as we do. I've learned from trying to share this with people and they're all like, yeah, okay. (laughs) It's his favorite hobby. Uh, I like that that's like differentiated from like the torture aspect. The twisted mind that came up with that. I (laughs) respect them so much. Truly. Okay. (sighs) The fade out. Yes, yeah, so this is they 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 have this creative control, but yeah. I kind of it's interesting. I do feel like almost every comic I see, like there's something from Ed Brubaker where he's like, "This is the most successful one we've ever done." There are a but few this... staples of the like Brubaker media cycle slash like book production cycle of like. I never thought anyone would make this book by me, superstar creator Ed Brubaker. This is the most successful book we've ever done. This is the most personal book I've ever done. Um, Stay tuned for more of this book (laughs) that never materializes. And and in the spine of the book as well. The spine of the book? Oh, yeah. Cool. Good. I mean, not the ones that I'm reading, but the single issues. Yeah, definitely. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. I mean, like, this is... Again, this is something that feels like a movie. Um, Very much probably, so. Although apparently declined to sell it until it was completed. Uh, declined to sell it as a as a movie? Yeah, like declined to sell. Like he was contacted, according to Wikipedia, <laughs> he sure. was contacted about the rights like quite early on. But apparently... I can imagine. Yeah, but apparently was like... I've sold the rights too early and it like messed up my creative process because then I was just imagining like, how is this going to translate to film? Right. Um, so he was like, I want to finish it first. And then I don't know if he did end up selling it, but it is, it's like, it does scream movie. And yet it's also so like noir pastiche that I'm like, I feel like if this was a movie, it would be really hard to, to make it good, even though I think the comic is really good and, like, the story is really good. Right. Well, they did make this movie and it was called Mank. I just should mm. throw that uh, in there. I thought they made it and it was called Trumbo. <laughs> they did kind of make it and it was kind of called Trumbo. It's true. 
Ed Brubaker talks about Trumbo a lot in the press <laughs> for this book. <laughs> what? Trumbo the guy, not the, Trumbo not the, the movie. guy. Yeah. Okay. Trumbo the guy. Because apparently his uncle, John Paxton, Hollywood screenwriter in the Golden Age slash Hewak Age, was like good friends with Trumbo. And so all the time he's like, you know, there were guys who had to front for Trumbo. <laughs> um <laughs> And, and like, yeah, just like, is the guy who he brings up when he's like explaining the concept of like fronting, um, which is like where a non blacklisted writer basically like sells the scripts of a blacklisted writer and then like passes off the money for him. And he's always like, a lot of uh, the blacklisted writers were doing this, like Dalton Trumbo. <laughs> right. Um, did you know that our. That basically in Trumbo, there is like a composite character who is like his blacklisted friend, played by Louis C.K. <laughs> I didn't know that. What an interesting meta commentary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cancel culture is kind of the modern Hollywood blacklist. Too true. Too true. <laughs> I did also see an interview with Brew Baker where. In, like, describing the, like, HUAC hearings, he was like, I can only imagine what these, like, German filmmakers who fled from Nazi Germany were thinking. And I was like, probably, like, this is bad, but not as bad as Nazi Germany. Right. <laughs> like, I get it. I get, again, HUAC is kind of like Nixon in terms of things that, like, Americans are absolutely obsessed with. That I'm like, right. I get why this was a big deal. But I don't get why it seems to still be such a big deal that people are, like, so fascinated by it and, like, fixated on it. Well, because America loves freedom. Um, sure, and yeah, because definitely. I guess the HUAC is a little different. But, like, I, the, fifth, the post-war America is, like, the most important time that there has ever been, according to American everything. They did uh, build their empire. Can't be denied. Absolutely. Uh, with the help of good old Ronald Reagan, who makes a brief appearance in this. Yeah. Ronnie's and, in the picture, for sure, so to speak. <laughs> sure. You know, he appeared and, in a few of those back in his day. <laughs> Ronald Reagan, the actor? <laughs> Is that an Archie reference? No, I believe they say that in Back to the Future. Oh, yeah, they do. Because it's like, who's president? And he says Ronald Reagan. And then uh, Doc Brown says, oh, he has some funny... He does say the actor, and then he's like, he says something about like who the vice president or who the secretary of state is or something, right. and it's a good joke. <laughs> I would love to remember it. Check someday. out Back to the Future. Uh, <laughs> 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 there's a good joke about Ronald Reagan in it. Um, there's also a semi-good joke about Ronald Reagan in this, which uh, weirdly caused me to recall uh, the. Black Ops Call of Duty series of video games. Mm -hmm. uh, just that it's funny that that's a thing that happens. In Black Ops Cold War, you take your orders directly from Ronald Reagan. That is funny. I didn't know that. Never played it. <laughs> Wasn't Nixon in the first Black Ops? Is he? I don't know. The only thing I remember from the first Black Ops is the guy being like, the numbers, Mason. Yeah. And my name is Victor Reznov, famously. Oh, yeah. Classic. Is Gar That's Gary Oldman, right? Is Reznov? I think so. You might be right. Sam Worthington, of course, is uh, is Alex Mason. 
I'm glad that we have started in this area because I don't have that much to say about the comic, <laughs> although I do think it is good. I don't know that much about like old Hollywood. That's do you too know? bad because I was <laughs> kind of counting <laughs> on that being your thing. <laughs> I can imagine. And no, I don't really know that much. I mean, like I have vague understanding of like the studio system was really crazy. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I've never listened to uh, You Must Remember This, which is the... That's like their whole thing. Yes. I don't know how exactly or what exactly they cover, but yeah, that's basically their thing is like old Hollywood. A lot of the time they do have a season on the blacklist and like, you know, early MGM and things like that. And I didn't read any of them, but the essays in this one are all like old Hollywood, like the dark side of old Hollywood essays, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or at least kind of like profiles of actors who, yeah, who who are like golden age actors usually being like, and their lives were sorted. <laughs> right. People love and their lives were sorted uh, about a, an old movie star. Absolutely. Yeah, they they do. I feel like the most interesting character and the one who I wish this was about is Brodsky. <laughs> because, first of all, it's great to see my old friend Tracy Lawless back again. <laughs> Don't know how he got here, but I, I'm happy to see him. Surprisingly progressive views about sexuality. <laughs> yeah. As soon as you see Brodsky, you're like, here's a Sean Phillips guy. <laughs> And, like, that's true of the other characters as well. Like, I guess Parrish kind of looks like... uh, Yeah, he looks like Jacob Kurtz. And I also thought that, like, Mr. Thursby, the, like, studio executive, looked like the, like, first bishop body from Fatal. He looks like the guy who's saying, get him, boys. (laughs) Famously. Wants you to rattle him. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I don't usually think of him as a guy who has, like a lot of kind of like stock characters, but there are a lot of characters in this book who look a lot like other characters from other books uh, that we have like seen before cropping up here. Right. Which is like, I don't think is really, I do think it is just a case of like this guy. We've seen a lot of his work at this point. Yeah. And this is also like, a huge cast of characters kind of like it's somewhat sprawling and like, it's hard to make everyone like visually distinct and like never repeat any like face you've ever drawn before. Yeah. Although there are like, he is, I feel like clearly using sort of not stock at like references here. Like I'm sure he did a lot of Mm -hmm. research into like old Hollywood movie stars, like Tyler Graves, I feel like is a very like, he looks like a lot of people like he sort of looks like Elvis. He sort of looks like James Dean. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, yeah, I do think that all of the like fictional actors are supposed to evoke like a type, if that makes sense. Like certainly Mm -hmm. there's like some, some like Earl Flynn in, um, in Earl Haig. (laughs) No, not Earl. Earl Earl Rath. That's Earl Haig is of course a school in Toronto. Uh, (laughs) Um, but yeah, there's, there's like lots of that. It's also very interesting to see. So like, as kind of like, at least in the deluxe edition, like little kind of like 
separators between the issues he does these like mock-up movie posters and of course there's also like lots of movie posters just kind of like throughout the book because it's a book about movies but and those are done like very photorealistically to look like posters from like golden age hollywood and it's like funny to look at them and be like huh like this this looks like you <laughs> like really used a photo of Michelle Dockery for like reference, for example, which is funny. Sure. In fact, then, I can show you the very one that I'm thinking of. <laughs> there it is. Can you see her? Um, I can see her. Do you think that she looks like Michelle Dockery? Uh, sure. <laughs> Googling Michelle Dockery. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I. Yeah. <sighs> Like, when your cast is inclusive of a lot of, like, movie stars. Right. It's, it must you gotta be so have, like, easy a kind to of just, look. Yeah. <laughs> to just dip into the well. Yeah. In the same way that, like, in, in Velvet, like, obviously all of the spy guys are going to look like, like, spy movie guys. Um, right. Like, how can you not just be like, all right, where's, like let's let's sprinkle in some like humphrey bogart jimmy stewart like you know all the all the old favorites and like stir them in a little pot and then turn them into like this this guy yeah and give him the little mustache yeah give him give him a pencil mustache a mustache as he would doubtless say sure he and the other thing that they do is i didn't know this but on on the singles on the back they're on the back covers. There are always like publicity stills. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking characters. of. Oh, yeah. So not posters, but stills. Yeah, of um, like so and so and so and so in this. Usually, like a character <laughs> who was mentioned um, close to the end of the issue or at some point in the issue. Like for example, they show um, Dottie being like blackmailed by Drake Miller. <laughs> at one point and he brings up some <laughs> character we never see like mrs mooney and then the production still at the end of that one is like so and so mooney in this and it's like a still a scary of her. thing yeah absolutely so this comic is normal frankly <laughs> it, it, it's normal it's good we can summarize it in a minute but i am interested to hear from you because i had a similar sort of like velvet-esque dilemma with this they use real people very sparingly. There's like lots of like name dropping, of course, of everyone's like bogey, this, blah, blah, blah. There's like one appearance by Clark Gable um, mm-hmm. where he like kind of wanders into a scene and it prompts like a little bit of background exposition about Charlie, our main character. But other than that, it's like a lot of um, pastiches, a lot of kind of like composites, um, a lot of like this person types and I was like I was torn I was like if you're gonna set it in this period do you want to like leverage the real people more or is it more impactful if like the only real people who show up are like Dashiell Hammett and Clark Gable and they're both only in like one scene and it makes it like kind of a big deal that they're there right I mean I think it's just hard I mean and you probably just don't want to do it to, I mean, like, what's the, the alternative is what? That, like, a real movie star gets killed? <laughs> or, like, that, like, I feel like you just, when you're doing a real person, there's probably a tendency to, like, 
treat them a little differently. Like the way right. you write them is probably differently. The way you depict them is probably a little different than you would depict a fictional character. Mm-hmm. Given that a lot of this book is like the characters often like look pathetic. <laughs> um, <laughs> that probably like would affect the way that you wrote things like that. So I, especially in this story, like I see what you mean, but in this specific story, I feel like it's kind of hard to really do that, especially when like there are what three actors who are important to the plot. Yeah. Pretty uh, four. And it's mostly like studio people, it's writers, producers, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So, you know, it's a little like, it's almost like even if you did put in a real name, would that really be like so much crazier? Yep, true. All good points. And I guess it does also kind of like establish the sort of like hierarchy where it's like, yeah, like Earl Rath is like a movie star. People are like, whoa, it's Earl Rath. Let's go like talk to him, blah, blah, blah. But like when Clark Gable enters the the scene, it's like, oh, there's like Earl Rath and then there's like, Clark Gable. Right. It lends more legitimacy to the characters that you do choose to depict as real people. Yeah, like when when even the movie stars like get starstruck, that is in some ways like a better use of a real person to be like, let's take this person who's actually famous and and then like emphasize how actually famous they are. Right. Right. Uh, maximize the impact of that. All right, I'm convinced. All right. I'm glad I could help. Uh, should we talk about the plute? Do let's. It is sprawling. Hey, who it's, are you, Carrie Coon? Is she in a movie or something called Sprawling? Nope, before that. It is. When I said, should we summarize the <laughs> plot? What did you say? I don't remember. <laughs> you said, do let's. As she does. Uh Tracy. She's married to him. Great. (laughs) (laughs) What? Okay, thumbs up. I like it, I guess. Okay. Here is what we are going to do. Charlie Parrish, Chuck. A (gasps) one-time Oscar-nominated screenwriter who... uh, He's Mank. (laughs) uh, He's apparently Mank, although he did lose his Oscar to uh, Citizen Kane, so... Or he's Mankian. Much He's like primate. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he is a writer in Hollywood in 1948, uh, and his life is bad. He, he went to fight in World War II with Clark Gable and is severely traumatized by that and is nursing his woes with uh, functional alcoholism. He also has uh, soiled his reputation around town by reporting his best friend Gil to uh, Huac uh, and getting him blacklisted. And he's just woken up next to a dead body, basically. He, right. uh, he wakes up to find himself in the home of the lead actress on the movie that he's currently writing for, and she is dead. So he wipes all trace of himself and leaves. He has no memory of how he got there or what happened because he was blackout. Um, a thing that happens to him a lot. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, <laughs> so 
Yeah, so he flees, but uh, the you know the questions and the guilt are eating at him, especially when the news finally breaks and the report is that she killed herself. He is also fronting for Gil uh, and and actually reported him with his cooperation, a thing that I want to talk about in a bit. Sure. So he shares his like confusion and suspicions with Gil who then in turn himself starts to be kind of like consumed by his obsession with what actually happened to uh, Val the star Uh, meanwhile Charlie who is not only fronting but also can no longer write uh, presents himself as kind of like the the face of the writer that is actually Gil at this movie as they try to go through reshoots to replace uh, all of the scenes that had Val in them. Uh, He falls into a love affair with Maya, the actress who replaces her. Meanwhile, Gil is kind of like investigating away and basically like (laughs) provokes the, (laughs) the studio executives into like leading him to incriminating evidence that suggests that Val was killed because she had, she had information about being abused as a child by several different studio executives. Um, Charlie, meanwhile, learns that one of the producers for the studio that they work for is actually an FBI agent who is like collecting blackmail um, to get people to name names. Uh, So they ultimately put their information together and determine that all of this is in some way related and attempt to go to uh, one of the studio heads homes to kind of like take advantage of the fact that he has dementia (laughs) to get the the full story from him, which uh, backfires and Gil is killed. Charlie uh, is kind of at the end of his rope, but the studio fixer Brodsky, who has been kind of an antagonist the whole time, shows up uh, to save his bacon by helping him dispose of Gil's body and uh, kind of like make all of the problems go away. Um, so Charlie has to kind of like live with uh, the terrible weight of knowledge, but does return to writing and the studio system. And Brodsky explains to him hypothetically that, uh, in fact, Val had been killed by Drake Miller, the FBI agent, because he was unable to effectively blackmail her. And, uh, and that makes them all mad that they didn't get their chance to kill Drake Miller, a bad guy. Oh, and he also then has an affair with Gil's wife. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, he really, he really does sleep with everyone. <laughs> Not Dottie, and she just yes. wants to sleep with him. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dottie, a real Princess Carolyn type. Is that true? Is that not true? You seem I don't know. Bojo Homey, right? Kinda, a little bit. She's I think an agent, yes. right? She is an agent. Yeah. But she started as a publicist, I think. Actually, no, that's not true. She is an agent, but she has a similar sort of like, you know, Bojack, baby, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. You know, the kind of like fast talking, uh, right? like, <laughs> like soother, peacemaker, sort of like problem disappearer, promoter, tireless promoter, you know, always, always on the side of the star. She's a Princess Carolyn type. I'm standing by it. She seems competent, I will say. Whereas I feel like Princess Carolyn, her whole thing is like, she's incompetent, but is just like good at schmoozing, basically. Uh, I don't know if I'd go that. I mean, she is definitely used to kind of like pastiche 
or not pastiche to like lampoon agents as like a an occupation from time to time which right. means that like at times she is presented as kind of useless but only insofar as like all agents are useless i think she's like good at her job sort of like as far as that goes but like bojack horseman is basically skeptical about (laughs) the value of an agent like period or wants to kind of like poke fun at the concept of an agent and what they actually contribute to the hollywood machine so to speak right but yes Dottie is certainly competent so charlie is fronting for gill who he got blacklisted there's a story that I didn't fully understand, and I thought I did, and now I'm trying to piece it together again. So, I think I do understand it as like told, but I don't understand it. So Charlie named Gil's name, and everyone believes that he like betrayed his best friend, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We later learned that in fact Gil was like name my name, and then you confront for me, and. Right. And, and everyone kind of acts like this was sort of like a mutually beneficial arrangement. But I'm just always like, why did Gil's name, need, like, what, why, why would Gil be like, name my name? What, didn't what's they have the point a, of that? But didn't they have a run-in with like a gangster? They did, but the resolution of that was like, Charlie signs a seven like year deal with this studio that bails them out right but charlie can't write well charlie can't write after the war when they first like when they get locked into that deal it's before the war hmm but yeah so (laughs) like i don't get i just don't get why it's like oh charlie name gill like why is that a good idea i guess just to like free himself sort of I guess, well, here's question number one. Is Gil a communist? Because he at one point has like a, like, you know, semi-drunken tirade about like, this is what I really hate about capitalism. But he doesn't seem like very political, generally speaking. Like, sure. Yeah. So question number one is, is Gil a communist? Question number two is, (sighs) yeah, I just, I don't get why that's (laughs) like a smart arrangement. Like, why does Gil need to be blacklisted? especially if he's not a communist, but even if he is a com, like, like what does he get out of Charlie naming him? There's some, I think the idea is like Gil is sacrificing himself because Charlie sacrificed himself by ending up with this raw deal. I guess (laughs) I I don't get why Gil needs to sacrifice himself though. Like, why can't Gil just write Charlie's scripts for him and also not be blacklisted? Right. Hold on. I'm almost figuring this out. Uh, 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 I don't know. <laughs> okay. Here is, here is what the, like, text says pretty much verbatim. I thought, because I distinctly remember reading something and being like, oh, so that's why this happened. But now I'm like, maybe not. Okay, I'm going to read the caption boxes that ostensibly explain the arrangement. So Charlie could barely remember the early days anymore when he was the new kid in town and Gil Mason 
Mason, the numbers, was the old pro showing him the ropes. The war had wiped away most of those days, and the congressional hearings had finished them off. Now, every other week, some friend was getting dragged into the FBI to make a statement, keeping it private to make it easier to be cowards. Gill had been one of the first to be blacklisted after the Hollywood 10, but he knew Charlie's ugly secret, at least part of it. Charlie hadn't been able to write for years, not since France and Germany. Whatever it was inside that had made him a writer had been stolen over there. Now he was just empty, blah, 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 more about he can't write. It was Gill who told him to give the FBI his name. That was how it would work, their secret deal. Charlie would get the jobs and Gill would do the writing, or rather dictating, since Gill was a terrible typist, and as long as no one found out, they could survive. Charlie had wanted to say no at first, and even though he hated the communists, he would never have given up Gill, but there was Melba and the kids to think of. So, again, I don't I don't get, is, is Gill a communist? Yes. So is the idea here, like, Gill is a communist, and at some point someone is going to name names. So right. it might as well be Charlie, because that gets him, like, out of the FBI's crosshairs, and then they can, like collaborate to earn a living together because charlie can't write anymore right i think that's correct that is so convoluted (laughs) and like unclear the part about charlie giving gill up like you said is like that's sort of where it sticks i'm glad we went through that whole ordeal of discovery (laughs) i just i just am like that part that part needs something more there needs to be like a greater like yeah, Charlie either needs to like be in like serious trouble where it's like the FBI is like really leaning on him and it's like give us a name or we ruin your life. And then Gil like steps in and that needs to like that whole thing needs to be a lot clearer or there needs to be like something I don't know, like some somehow like getting his name named like solves a problem for Gil or something cuz the whole thing of like oh he's got Melba and the kids to think about and it's like so getting himself blacklisted from his career is the solution to take right. care of his family? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, there's sort of like this sort of... I think he likes the idea of this sort of symbiotic... Like, yeah, he definitely does. We have this shared, like, we're both Life, like, basically. Yeah. And we each, we each have, like, half a life, basically. And, like, that's all we can really scrape together for ourselves. But yes, you're right that like there needs to be more of an impetus for that specific element because it's like you could basically like go to jail. <laughs> like, like this seems like the worst possible solution to a problem that barely exists. <laughs> right. Cuz like, like at some point they might ask Charlie to name names or like someone might eventually give up Gill. Like right. It's ba- it's like hey, hypothetically our, one of our lives could be ruined. So let's just ruin it proactively and then we don't have to worry about it. Right. And then especially for Gil, like it seems like Gil carries so much like anger about the consequences of like having his name named. And then it's like, that was your idea. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you can't shoot yourself in the foot and then be like, Ah, that son of a gun that <laughs> shot my foot. Is <laughs> like, this old foot of mine? Yeah, like, if I ever run across that fella, he's gonna get the what for. Sure. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't really track. And it's also like, there's already an established reason for this to happen. 
it makes sense that he was like, oh, I like the idea of this, like, back in the 50s, you used to have this thing where, like, one person would, like, write for another person because they were blacklisted. And so it's like, it seems like it's as if he was like, I like that idea. How can I cause that idea to occur? Mm-hmm. Or occur, as some might say. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> How can I get this to occur? But then it's like, you're in the 50s or the 40s, bro. Like, you can just make it happen. You can just yeah. do that thing <laughs> you were talking about. It's so much legwork for to, to like put them in the situation. Like, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, why does it have to be so complicated it's very complicated (laughs) it's so complicated that we didn't know what it was talking about like i still am not really sure that we've got it right because i'm like why would a professional writer (laughs) engineer that situation right i guess they're just like missing pages probably where it's like he knew what the answer was but it wasn't in the comic but like uh, i don't know maybe that's true that would surprise me considering there are like a number of pages where I was like, you could take this out and lose absolutely nothing. Like there's one page (laughs) where it's like, uh, oh yeah. And here's how Mr. Thursby got his start, like driving around and distributing films. And it's like one page that's literally just like, here's Mr. Thursby's backstory that I like flipped back and forth. And I was like, you literally lose nothing to cut this, (laughs) this page. Like it flows better to not have this page of him being like, I remember when I drove around, like handing out film reels to the local theaters. And that was how I started my studio. I was like, who cares? I mean, respectfully, Wither Flapjack. <laughs> like, mm. Why is that character in here? I mean, Flapjack is there. I I like Flapjack. I like the whole kind of like uh, Little Rascals kind of like parody right. that is the, the crazy kids or whatever they're called. Right. I, I like his role as a sort of like... You know, the the I think that he lends some good emotional weight for like us to care about Val being right. dead beyond right. like Charlie's relationship with her, which is like kind of like, I don't know. Yeah, he, he, they have a weird relationship and like Flapjack just makes her <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't call him Flapjack. <laughs> Jack makes their uh, like their relationship just makes her feel a bit more real. I think he also is a good sort of like you're on the right track, but also, like, I'm not going to, like, dig right. up all my, like, traumatic experiences to give you the whole story, even though I basically, like, I have a lot of the information you need, but it would be boring if it was just, like, so I called up her old friend, and he was like, oh, yeah, she she was sexually abused. <laughs> and, now, and now I understand. So as a sort of, like... But we basically do hear that. We do basically hear that, but it's also like he obviously could tell him a lot more and is not going to, which is like it's 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 a good sort of like, let's keep the string going and we'll give like just enough to be like now. And now we have to go somewhere else to if we want more, like we've gotten all that we're going to get from Jack and uh, yeah. And and so now let's take it elsewhere. Right. Yeah, I, I, I like him. He's, I like he's him good. Too. I mean, wither Mando, Mondo, Armando. Sure. Wither that guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it is a little bit like it is the miniseries syndrome as well. 
where it's like, we have this old Hollywood setting. And so like, we need to depict every facet of old Hollywood life where it's like, yeah. And there was racism as well. I don't know if you know much (laughs) about this. There, there are definitely like, I like this stuff in here and it doesn't bother me in a comic the same way it would in it, like a TV series or a movie Sure. where just like the, like the serialized nature of it. I'm like, yeah, like, like, I guess kind of like tell this story for like as long as you want pretty much, even though there are some pages, Mr. Thursby's origin story that I'm like, this is completely unnecessary, but there are definitely a lot of things like in this where it's like, Brubaker found like an anecdote about old Hollywood that just tickled him absolutely pink. And he was like, (laughs) I've got to get this into the book somehow. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, again, like that's what I kind of what I mean, where it's like, I have this old Hollywood setting. It would be a shame not to like dump all that in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, um, (sighs) I don't remember where we were just, we were talking at some point about how like, it's uh oh yeah he had this like idea about like the two writers with their like symbiotic relationship and i did read somewhere that that basically was like the original idea and then like the murder mystery element of it was kind of like added on (laughs) basically right so so like yeah that that makes sense to me it's interesting to see the whole sort of like, I know we've already read comics that are effectively from after this, but it has been interesting to see like the last few we've done, the ways in which that like Game of Thronesification that he kind of talked about has like seeped its way into all of these because I like the perspective changes in this book are like almost chaotic at times. Like where like within a page, it will like transition from like, one person's first person narration to third person narration to like another character's first person narration. And it like gets hard sometimes to keep track of like whose perspective we're, we're getting. And like the cast is huge and I feel like they pretty much all get like at least kind of like a moment as the, like the character, you know? Right. I guess so. I didn't really think about that because it does, like you said, sort of seem to be following old uh chucky for most of it yeah it definitely does but like like that page that thursby page that i keep harping on is kind of like the primo example where it's like chuck leaves with uh the director i know his name isn't oscar schmidt is it oscar schmidt no otto schmidt something like that it's of course (laughs) come on (laughs) schmitty my favorite it's new girl character franz schmidt uh, of course franz schmidt anyways they leave and like as the the panel of them like walking out is like and thursby watched them go and then it, like, <laughs> right. like, and then he thought about his career and then it, it, it like is literally like next page anyway so we got back to the lot like me and schmidt got back to the lot and i was like whoa <laughs> like there's a lot of like kind of bouncing around like that where characters right. will like kind of like hand off the perspective to each other. Even for scenes like that Charlie is in, it will like start with him and then it'll be like blah 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 Maya thought and it's like, "Oh, okay, now we're with Maya for like three panels and then it's back to Charlie when he like walks away." Right. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. And it's like, I, I think that is also partly symptomatic of the whole thing of like, I want to tell all the stories. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, that he is in love with the setting and wants to just like live in the setting as much as possible. And then it's also like, oh, I have a story to tell here. And it's like, I don't really mind that. Like you said, like, I think that it's an interesting enough setting and he like knows enough about it that it sort of sustains itself. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. You look look shocked. (laughs) I was just going to look at the sales for this book. The number one selling comic in February 2015, IDW's Orphan Black number one, selling 497,000 units. I can't be right. Is is there what? A, can you oh, do like a fake loot sales? Crate, loot crate, loot crate. Okay. It was in loot crate. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That's what that face was where I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was Why? like, they Would bought, a, Black they bought a bunch one. of copies and gave them away, which I guess they kind of did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, that just really, really <laughs> threw me for a loop. Uh, um, yeah, so I I like overall like the incorporation of the more perspectives, and I think that especially for a book like this where the cast is like massive, that getting those different perspectives is great. I also was like, it's a 12 issue issue, <laughs> issue like maxi series where reading it, I was kind of like, it's interesting that this is so much tighter than cruel summer, which is like eight or nine issues, depending how you look at it. And we were sort of like, there's, there's like so much fat to trim in that book in some ways. And not that like the fade out is like the leanest, meanest fighting machine you've ever seen in terms of like, having stuff that you could cut and not lose too much but for some reason it just feels more like cohesive or like fulsome and I guess it is because so much of the book is like picture yourself in like the Hollywood of the 1940s and like creating the tone and the atmosphere is like basically like the point of the book as much as like anything in the story and like yeah there's there's a lot of stuff like there are like a lot of parallel plot lines and like yeah I think that he does a better job of sort of weaving them together because I almost feel like it's like if it were Cruel Summer or like some equivalent, it would be like there is the Tyler Graves issue where it's like we open on Tyler Graves coming home to his boyfriend and Mm -hmm. then uh, Brodsky shows up. Yeah, like it would be more structured like that. Whereas with this, maybe because it's a mystery and so you sort of have people like uncovering information in that way. And so it's sort of just like you just get the information and you don't really have to like let all of it build up. And that both gives it more propulsiveness and it sort of interweaves the stories more successfully. And it also like, you know, even though we talked about the idea of the narration sort of being a little haphazard, it doesn't have or feel the need to, you know, give every character their due in that way. Like, mm-hmm. Even though it would probably be fun, it's like, I'm kind of glad there isn't, like, the Dottie issue, where it's like, yeah, what does yeah. Dottie do in a day? What does she think about all this? <laughs> Why is she so in love with Charlie? And it's like, we probably would be like, that's a good issue, but... We probably would. I th- it probably makes the book better not to have it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, also, again, with this many characters, like, everyone can't have an issue. Like, I'm sure the Earl issue would also be really good, but, like... 
Earl can't have an issue at the same time as like all these other characters, especially when like for how kind of like central he is, he's kind of like tangential to the plot. Right. I want to talk a little bit about, as we alluded to earlier, what Charlie saw in the war. Right. What is is this? Is there an implication here that he like liberated a concentration camp? <laughs> Or is it literally just like the, like the, not to undermine the horrors of war, but is it literally just like the horrors of war? I, I'm, I believe it is literally just the horrors of war. Okay. They just like talk around it in such a way and like are so kind of like oblique about it where like, like Brodsky is like, I've read your service record, pal. I know you know a thing or two about like no job. Right. And I'm like, right. Because like he was there when they stormed Auschwitz. Is that like is is that the implication? Or like which he, I don't like, like. Not that I want that in here. Like if it was like ever since like the camps, he like he was never the same. I would be like, okay, of course he. Or it's like <laughs> I saw Clark Gable have his way with a German villager, or like something like like it. Yeah, something it that feels like, like so it's gross. Teasing a story that never gets told. Yeah. Yeah, because it does like it does there's so much like implication about like Charlie like saw like the worst of it is is kind of what is suggested and not and, that you need to like again not to undermine the horrors of war right. not to suggest that like you need to have seen like the absolute worst of the worst to be traumatized by it at all. It's just like the way it's the narrative like use of the trauma and the way it's positioned and the fact that nobody ever really says like what specifically they're talking about that makes it feel like there's so like such a heavy implication about what it was. Right. There is just like, there's so much weight put behind it that you are expecting, like even if that's not true in real life, like you do sort of expect a proportional like something behind it event mm-hmm. or story or reveal or something. I was not aware that Clark Gable was a like combat, you know, I wasn't aware that Clark Gable saw combat. I feel like Jimmy Stewart is the one that usually comes up as like, and did you know that like he actually fought in world war two? Like for real? Sure. I don't really know. Anything You're not about aware that of any. <laughs> Here is what, Wikipedia told me about Clark Gable's uh, wartime career. Gable flew five combat missions, including one to Germany as an observer gunner in a flying fortress between May 4th and September 23rd, 1943, earning the Air Medal and Distinguished (laughs) Flying Cross for his efforts. During one of the missions, Gable's aircraft was damaged by flak and attack fighters, which knocked out one of the engines and shot up the stabilizer. In the raid on Germany, one crewman was killed and two others were wounded, and Flack went through Gable's boot and narrowly missed his head. When word of this reached an MGM studio, executives badgered the Army Air Forces to reassign its most valuable screen actor to non-combat duty. In November 1943, Gable returned to the United States to edit his film. Hey, so, that must be the first freaking time Clark Gable caught any Flack. Uh-huh. Nice. You know, like I could get away yep. with Moida. Also, Hitler apparently wanted Gable v. Bad. <laughs> like, like, had a bounty to, like, bring me Gable alive. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> uh, 
yes. Adolf Hitler favored Gable above all other actors during World War II. Hitler offered a sizable reward <laughs> to anyone who him. could capture and bring Gable to him unscathed. Whoa. That's crazy. Yeah, Weird it guy. was like... He was like, get me the Spear of Destiny and Clark Gable. (laughs) Those are the two things I most desire. (laughs) That would be a good Indiana Jones story. (laughs) He has to rescue Clark Gable. (laughs) Why are there these attempts on Clark Gable's life? Uh, Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, So, yeah, not like he he saw no action, but but I was, yeah, I, I was... Like there's there is such a heavy implication that I was like, is there some story about one of like Clark Gable's missions that is like well known to people who are like really into old Hollywood and like it doesn't seem like it, but yeah, I don't know that that was of interest to me. Yeah, his discharge papers were signed by Reagan. <laughs> cool, love that guy. He's always talking to Mr. Gorbachev, which I love. He's always talking to Mr. Gorbachev. <laughs> He's always like, tear down this wall. TDTW. So, again, like this comic, very much so. I guess, yeah, I don't don't have anything that I'm like, this should have been changed, this should have been different. It is just like a case of like, I kind of find Charlie to be like a tabula rasa. And in any like given scene, I'm like, you're the least interesting character. I I wouldn't go that far. I like Charlie. I think that he, you know, in in a very noir main character kind of way, he has like a tragic and, you know, I think part of what you're seeing is maybe by design that he is like sort of tragically milquetoast. Right. In the same way that like, you know, that isn't criminal or stuff like that, where it's like, this guy, like, he has been, like, so beaten down that he is now, like, like this. And then, like, but he isn't quite until the end, which we can talk about the ending. He isn't quite, like, the guy who never does anything. Because he does do things. Like, he is investigating. and He does, like, sort of get involved yeah. in stuff. The big problem I have is that so much of the book is predicated on his inability to remember certain events (laughs) because truly like if he just remembered what he did that night yeah then like there wouldn't be a comic (laughs) probably 80 percent of the comic wouldn't be there i guess there would still be like who killed her and why yeah but like his suspect list would be much shorter i feel like and he would have to do like a lot less digging probably yeah it's it's also interesting like I'm looking at the, like, comic trailer that they made, which, like, Brubaker and Phillips always do, like, a trailer. I guess it's really a Brubaker thing, because they did one for Velvet, too. Anyways, there's always, like, this trailer to kind of, like, tease the next project. And the stuff that is, like, in it is mostly in some like way shape or form it does get to the comic but it's like weirdly scattershot in terms of like the direction that it seems to like so the first page yeah i don't it's it's very (laughs) it 
it's just like a, a real jumble of ideas where it's like, oh, Dottie is like patching him up after a bar fight. And she's like, another bar fight? You're a writer, Charlie, not an actor. Your life isn't supposed to be interesting. And you see him like in the bar fighting like a million people, which is like that happens one time for sure that he right. <laughs> gets in a bar fight. And then there's like another page of him and Brodsky where they're both like looking very beaten up um, and Brodsky saying, you know what your problem is kid you're a dreamer and you think we make dreams in this town. We don't. We make money. Great Brodsky line that should have been in the comic. And then Charlie's response is, you're wrong Brodsky all my dreams are nightmares and then there's two more panels and, and then like the fade out coming August which the captions are the thing you have to understand about Charlie is he never really came home from the war, which is like, again, that's like in the book for sure. (laughs) But it like, it positions Charlie, I guess, as more of a kind of like classical noir protagonist in terms of like, I guess just like being more active, being more troubled, being more like violent. Isn't the thing of a noir protagonist though that it's like, I'm in the dark, I'm stumbling around. I don't know like which end is up and like who's who and what's going on. And then you just sort of find like, you don't find out till the end basically. It is. Yeah. I, I guess it just like, it frames him as having like a danger to him right whereas like the a charlie of, of the dark book, side yeah whereas the charlie of the book is like he has like a tragic dark side insofar as like he's severely traumatized right and like it rarely manifests if ever as like oh he's like angry and dangerous and it's mostly like he's extremely depressed and and doesn't know how to like handle his emotions and like the pain of his experiences yeah it's more and and, you know it sets this up from the very beginning that it's like it's more about he's hiding something which is true like it's like he's hiding his relationships with the two actresses he has to hide his whole investigation like he is constantly sort of misrepresenting himself and that's sort of like what his thing is is that he's either like lying or or he is sort of using his unimportance to sort of like slip past undetected. Yeah. But I, yeah, I'm I'm interested by the the tone of it, I guess. Where it like it almost makes me seem like they hadn't quite like figured out what the story was actually going to be about yet. Right. Which can't be true because if they hadn't figured out what the story was going to be about they wouldn't be like putting out a trailer and being like this is coming out but it's it's an interesting little like piece of ephemera whereas like i usually look at those trailers and i'm like aha they like really had the elevator pitch for this comic down and i guess the fade out is kind of like an elevator pitchable well like the, the elevator pitch i feel like is just like it's a noir murder mystery set in old hollywood yeah, I guess I guess that is what it is. And it's like, how do you make a trailer for that without giving away like a lot of details? But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting tonal kind of shift. Um, the mystery, as we know, <laughs> you have strong feelings about mysteries mm-hmm. in storytelling. Were you successfully strung along? Or did you remain interested in the the mystery? Were you satisfied by the conclusion? Well... 
were you I, I i here's what i would say about well the conclusion is deliberately unsatisfying exactly that is like were what you, were you pleased with that i guess <laughs> i think it's a good idea i but i think like i i i like the idea that it's like oh the actual reason is like much more pedestrian and like sort of like it like that it's like there isn't a complex scheme it is just like mm-hmm. a bad actor not like an actor in freaking Hollywood where we are, but like a bad person did a bad thing for a bad reason. And that's what it was. Like, I like that idea, but yeah, I still would like it to maybe be more of a surprise. Whereas it's like, it's set up very early. It's like, as soon as we know that he's a plant, it's like, well, maybe he did something for some reason. And then it just turns out it's like, Oh, he did do something for some reason. Like you want the reveal more so of like, he was an FBI guy gone bad as opposed to like the early like we're basically introduced to him as here's an fbi guy and then the reveal is he's gone bad (laughs) yeah or like you know like well no i think they do a pretty good job of sort of keeping his overall motivations opaque um and i still don't fully understand what the deal is with their like little bathroom meeting but i think yeah it's more that like we know he's an fbi guy we know that like he was there that night. He's like one of the few people who could conceivably like have a direct hand in this. And just like, we don't exactly know what his motivation would be. Mm-hmm. And then I get, yeah. And I don't know. I feel a little two ways about it, that it's like, that is what I'm saying. I like in a way that it, the reveal is like, Oh, he, he wasn't conspiring. He was just like a bad person. And yeah, like he was just a criminal, so to speak. Sure. And then just, like, basically killed her by accident. Like, that was what mm-hmm. the story was. But then that also right, does, like, like... Hollywood ruins everything it touches, even the lawman. Sure. And it's, like, that... I like that idea. And, I, I like I said, I like the idea that the reveal is, like, a non-reveal. Mm-hmm. But I guess I just want it to be, like... Like, I, I almost would... I would like it more if it was just, like a random guy just came by and killed her. Like that almost like gets across <laughs> what it is the, a little like, more successfully. of it all. Yeah. Whereas with this, it's just like, okay, <laughs> like, like I, we knew this guy was maybe a bad guy, mm-hmm. but we didn't know why exactly. And now we know why. And it is just like that. He was a bad, like he was, he had power and abused it. Mm-hmm. Like there's no why behind it really. Right. Yeah, I I love a good anticlimax, as I think we know. I've I've said that before, I'm sure. Yeah, I have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that there's an element in that like Brodsky line that's in the like trailer, quote unquote, that doesn't really get like added to the actual story of the comic until like a little later than where I would want it to. I guess give the whole thing like a bit more oomph, which is the whole like like the idea of it being like uh, these two writers get swept away in the story that they're telling themselves. And then they like realize too late that like life ain't a story kid to like to their sorrow. And then, and then he has to live with the consequences, which like is what happens except like it, that idea doesn't really get introduced until it's like all of a sudden it's like, life's not a story. And it was like, I didn't really think that you thought life was a story until 
I guess like just now, <laughs> which like we, we do get a lot of Charlie, the kind of like dreamer, like young Charlie, especially. Yeah, at least at the very least in comparison to Gil. Yeah, that kind of gets muddled. Like, I feel like the intention was more to present it as a bit of a dichotomy where Gil is like has been like thoroughly beaten down. Yeah. And is like is down and out basically like is out of a job is blacklisted is whatever. Whereas Charlie is like maybe the more idealistic one. But then it, then it's a and you know there, there's some interesting interplay there where it's like oh it ends up being Gil who kind of like. Yeah. Is the person who's taking action more than Charlie is because he kind of has nothing to lose. Yeah. And and like kind of gets swept away in the yeah like the story that he's telling himself basically yeah I, I feel i almost feel like it should be a little more of a character study of gill and charlie and yeah, that sort of exactly. dichotomy especially like gill dies and the book doesn't really care <laughs> like except in so far as like it impacts charlie but even like it's like it's more how it impacts charlie in a mechanical way like him getting together with gill's wife yeah like we literally get like three not even a full page of him like mourning Gil. And then it's, and then he's like, I need a clean shirt. I need to borrow your car. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I do think there's an element of that. That's like Charlie, the dreamer quote unquote is like the kid who first like rolled up to Hollywood, but the Charlie of today, like has more in common with Brodsky than he does with Gil. Sure. In terms of the sort of like, the like ah oh, hollywood like ruins people and it's like by the end of the story he now has that same kind of like nihilistic clear-eyed perspective on like what the industry is and what he gets out of it and like what he's willing to do to like keep his his position in it such that like yeah like when gil dies and we do kind of like see that develop over the course of things like he has those kinds of thoughts from like or even like the like Brodsky says, like the instinct to like scrub himself from Val's house and leave without like calling the police is like because like you know what it would cost you to like be the guy who was there. Right. And so to have the ending of it be like Gil, his like partner, his other half, his best friend, is dead, and the guy who helps him out is Brodsky, and the guy who he's thinking like in that moment is Brodsky, and like yeah, Hollywood has like made monsters of them all, basically. Right. Yeah. I I I think I, I just I want more of that. Like the idea I think I that they you know, I just watched White Christmas, which is obviously not like a noir or like a tragedy or anything, but is a movie from the 50s about like entertainers. And one of the big things about it is like, oh, with like in the entertainment world, like everyone has an angle. Everyone's working their own side of the street. Like everyone is maneuvering themselves to like get out ahead regardless of what happens. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's maybe more of what I wanted that like. I need to see a little more like I don't see a ton of Charlie isn't the guy who's like I'm such a bad guy I like only act in my own self-interest like I think we get hints of that and I think we mm-hmm. sort of get like we get him thinking that about himself but I don't feel like we ever feel that way that like he is sort of like he is a guy who would sell out a friend to Huack because like he wants to keep his career 
Right. Whereas I feel I like think, showing a little more of that is maybe like what's yeah. missing. Yeah. I do think like by the end, I think he is that guy and it does kind of like stick the landing for me in terms mm-hmm. of like at this point, what else does he have to lose but his like career and but the like status of being like a Hollywood fixture like and Gil is dead. Maya is like out of his life. And, and like, what wouldn't he do to keep the things, like, the only things left that he, like, actually cares about? Which, yeah, I do, I think, it's, I guess, like, the kind of, not sticking point or confusion, or I guess the thing that I struggle to factor into that is the whole, like, World War II experience and, like, the loss of the, like, creative muse there and those sorts of things where, like, if, if the story is about, like, the you know the golly shucks writer who comes to hollywood and we like see the transformation of him from like this idealistic dreamer who just like wants to share his stories with the world to this like corporate operator who is like looking out for number one and doing whatever it takes to like keep his career going then there's just like an element of it where like as they kind of say like the the golly shucks charlie like went off to war and never came back so like to what extent did hollywood ruin him versus like war ruined him (laughs) right and i I feel like i agree that it sticks the landing but i feel like the landing it's sticking isn't quite that i feel like the landing is like i did like the, the landing only works if you think that he is like regretful or do you think if you think that he like cares about doing the right thing right because like i think the Mm -hmm. whole idea of the ending is like you did the right thing more or less like you did everything you could you got everything you wanted but it's still Mm -hmm. like this is hell yeah and so that's true and so i feel like to have it be like like i feel like if he were like the bad guy or like the guy who would do anything to keep what he has i guess there is still there can still be regret to that but i feel like if he was that guy then it would just be like everything worked out great for me <laughs> or like yeah. it would be it would like be a more, of, more like of a the, like last of the innocent type of ending where it's like my life is great even though i effectively just murdered my best friend <laughs> right it's like i hug my wife and no one sees that like the like if you turn the camera around i'm like crying or whatever you know what i mean yeah yeah <laughs> like it's not yeah. that it's like it's just like i got what i wanted and it is bad. it is a little bit more so like yeah, that that kind of like late introduced element of like I tried to be like the movie hero, but like movie heroes don't exist in real life and there are problems that you can't solve by like being an angry man with a gun. And I learned that lesson the hard way, but like I'm still you know, morally intact to some extent. Right. It's it is it's a little bit of a jumble to me. Yeah, just just around some of these themes where I think if the story because I do think that part of it is like Hollywood is like an insatiable beast that consumes everyone who <laughs> like comes sure. to it seeking seeking their fame and fortune. Yeah, and and there's just like limits to how much of it I'm like Hollywood is like what made Charlie what he is, and also like to what extent is like who Charlie, like Charlie has obviously lost a lot and like is not happy 
even though he's obviously like never going to leave Hollywood. But uh, he's not like unsympathetic, if that makes sense. Right. Like so, we don't. So I'm like, is it what's it, what is the book's message about like the cost of fame and fortune? Like, is it that like, is it be careful what you wish for? Is it Hollywood makes monsters of us all? Is it like? I think it is like maybe just even more nihilistic almost that it's like you are tortured by guilt and like no one cares like that. I guess just yeah, that, that's like the system doesn't care and like these horrible things can happen and like right the system just keeps on going like everyone everyone pays like cost of entry to get into hollywood and like are you willing to pay yours yeah i guess so i don't know i don't know i I guess that's like more so that's that's more so in the whole kind of like naming names thing where it's like the time has come for you to like pay your pound of flesh for being like in hollywood and for you, Charlie, it's that you have to like, you have to like name Gil's name, and like, <laughs> are you prepared to, <laughs> are you prepared to live with that? Right. And then this story is like the answer of how he goes from like maybe to yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know, and I do like. It's interesting because I kind of knowing coming in that this was twelve issues, I was like oh, well, this will be, like, very focused. And he does talk about it as, like, this is, like, a serialized graphic novel. That, like, this is... I'm not, like, coming into this with, like, maybe we'll see more of Charlie down the road. Like, he doesn't talk about that, I don't think. Um, No. He, he, like, he does come in with it feeling much more self-contained than the previous ones, even though the previous ones end up being pretty self-contained as well. But mm-hmm. it, it kind of surprised me how haphazard it felt at times because I was like, oh, in, in the same way almost that a criminal does a lot of the times. Like, what I like about criminal is that, like, it tells the story so cohesively and so efficiently. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, it'll be like that. And then it, it it's like, it is a lot like that, but it also, like, goes in some, off in some weird areas, especially thematically. Yeah, there are, I mean, that is kind of, like, novelistic in its own way, sure. though, where, like, I think of, like, The Godfather, like, the novel The Godfather, which has all kinds of, like, unusual or, like, unexpected detours into, like, the lives of side characters that are like the famous one that everyone always brings up is that there's like the vaginal reconstruction subplot basically, but that's not the only like kind of weird, barely connected to the main story, like plot thread that kind of like gets tugged at in the course of that. And this, this just has like some similar things where it's like, and like, now we're going to like enter this character's world for a little while, even though it barely has anything to do with like the story, like the main story that's actually being told because like, why not? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, and- it, yeah. It's, it's just one of those things where it's like, well, if you're not going to do like the, like the Richard Stark thing basically and be like we're gonna tell this like simplest story as directly as possible with absolutely like no digression and no fat then it's like well why not you know why not flesh things out why not have it like you know really 
build the world? Why not really establish the mood and the atmosphere and all of that, which I feel like is what all of those things do. Yeah. And it's for the book's betterment a lot of times. I guess it's just like, if you're going to lean back and take some time, then why not take some time with the characters as well? Especially, like I Mm -hmm. said, Gil and Charlie. Like, I feel like they're like you know, four issues worth of stuff just about them or like, you know, a a few issues worth of stuff that's just on them, on their relationship. And like, we kind of brush over that stuff in service of the plot. Like we only sort of get like brief mentions of like, this is how their relationship is doing now. Like this is what Gil's up to right now. Whereas I feel like you could dig into their sort of, like I said, like a symbiotic relationship, which I think is really interesting and we just don't really see that much of it. I guess because we sort of come to it in its later stages. Mm-hmm. But I think there's more to that that like we don't really explore. Yeah, I I almost feel like if you're going to do that then like there shouldn't be like a murder mystery, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I do think that there are yeah, there are just like a lot of different ways that this book could have gone and i do think that like an interesting kind of take on it is like these two noir movie writers convince themselves that there's this murder mystery and you know go off on a a noir style wild goose chase only to kind of like realize that that they were just like kind of trying to bring excitement into their lives that they're dissatisfied and, and unhappy with Although having a real murder mystery also, yeah, <laughs> you I, know. I was sort of wondering, it's like, can you maybe just take some of, like, even just take more of the agency away and be yeah. like, Charlie is just like living his life. And so we see more of his like daily life and his sort of more emotional side. And then it's like, we just hear, like, he overhears something. Like, we, we get more like piecemeal where it's like mm-hmm. someone else or, you know, it can even be Gil if we want, like someone else is sort of like doing the legwork or like the police are investigating it and things are coming out. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's like he hears something and then he comes in, like he comes home. And like you said, it's sort of the idea of like the noir writers inventing the noir for himself. And that would be a good ending as well. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I do. I think that they do again, I wish I wish it was like I guess a, a little bit worked in throughout the whole thing, but I do think that it's a good, especially with like the anticlimax ending of like he never does figure it out and someone else just like has to explain it to him and he like was right. only kind of on the right track at any given point. But I, I I think for that story, it is a good climax to have it be like someone fires a gun and all of a sudden you're just like wait, what are we doing? Like, someone just fired a gun. (laughs) Right. What what are we doing? Like, how did we put ourselves in this situation? Like, the, like, sudden shock and horror of, like, this is, like, real life and someone could, like, actually get hurt. I think, like, that's a good, that's a good climax. And then, of course, like, Gil dying is, like, the perfect kind of, like, cap to that whole sequence. Yeah, so that's, like, that's good. I like that stuff. I guess what it is is that, like, there is really good stuff in here and I can like see where there would be more of the good stuff and the stuff that it would cost to have had more of that good stuff is not stuff where I'm like, yeah, but 
in order to get that, you have to lose Mr. Thursby's, like, visit to Maya's dressing room. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's like, really a crazy scene where it's like, <laughs> well, I mean, that's just a crazy, like, that. I feel like that's a very, like, screenwriter thing to think, or, like, a writer's thing to think of. Where it's like to be like, oh, she's <laughs> shaved her pubic hair, so she's going to like <laughs> shock and horrify him. <laughs> right. I feel like that's a very writerly thing to think of. Where it's that like, is like kind of like noiry to me too, though. Where there's this like kind of bizarre logical leap that <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that is like, but it makes sense to this like this character's twisted mind. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but like I said, the idea though that her agent could like predict that or like it, I I don't know that is a that is a funny thing of like lack of information that I think works well where it's like at some point the agent heard like something like he definitely doesn't know the whole story right but he knows that like well, he knows this little tidbit it feels like that's almost like not public knowledge but like. And a, like a, almost a wine open secret. Yeah, it's like it, yeah, yeah that, it's like you don't have to uncover that. Like people know about that. Yeah, and, but I am curious as to whether I mean it. De- like he kind of implies that he knows like a fair bit about it. But I'm curious. Like I guess I'm interested to know whether the thing that he heard was like there was this like this whole like pedophilia thing that would really trigger him or if it was just a story of like he's got like a weird thing about like shaved pubes no pubic hair right. like he reacts really like strangely right <laughs> and so it, it he was like i'm gonna that. put that in my back pocket it would have to be that because it's way more insane to be like he's a pedophile so if you do <laughs> so this and also like if you shave your pubic if you shave hair, your pubic hair he won't and like it yeah like it's kind of a backwards <laughs> logic which makes sense like when in from like a character perspective i guess or from like a psychological perspective yeah but you would never tell someone to do that as like a strategy <laughs> if you didn't know it was gonna work yeah exactly because yeah. maya is definitely like that was crazy <laughs> like i don't i don't i have literally no idea what that was <laughs> yeah. about <laughs> Uh, yeah, I do think the the noir of it all is very well done in terms of, like, all of the tone and especially yes. the, like, the, the, like, conspiratorial thinking and, like, the paranoia of it, I think, is well done. I, I kind of, like, can't decide whether I like that they were right to be paranoid to a certain extent or if I would have liked it better if it was, like, they were they were paranoid over nothing. I don't know. It's yeah. it's good. I like it as it is, and I can envision several other like ways for it to have gone that also would have been really good. <laughs> I do kind of come back to the yeah, like I think that the invent like the angle that it was like their invention almost works better in terms of like bringing home the thematic cohesion of it, and like would make mm-hmm. everything's like we already talked about. It. It's like. Of course, you never slept with two different movie stars. Like that didn't happen. Like you were just, you just like invented that scenario for yourself, where like you, you solved just got blackout and thought, yeah, you, where it's like that, you, that could you have created happened. this situation where it's like I solved the mystery and I slept with like two hot movie stars and my friend's wife, who I'm in love with. Uh huh. And also, the publicist is in love with me, but she wears glasses, so it could never happen between <laughs> right. us. They would clank together when we kissed. Uh, 
don't knock it till you don't try it. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> do we have anything else to say? This was a crazy no, episode. This is a crazy episode. Just, just that, like, yeah. There's, a, there's so many like Brubaker anecdotes of like, you know, this was a real thing, right? Like, you know, the like the tunnel was a real thing. This like uh, studio startup story was a real thing. RKO, you know, the antitrust thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I don't know. More, more Brodsky. Give me more Brodsky. Um, I would definitely watch or read the Brodsky spinoff. <laughs> yeah, there's a book. He like listed a bunch of sources, and I need to figure out if there this is a fiction book or a nonfiction book. I'm interested either way, but more interested if it's a nonfiction um, called The Fixers, where I'm just like, yeah, I'll mainline that, please. <laughs> right. <laughs> just, just stories of like amoral guys like going around and making problems go away right (laughs) it's like right right down main street for me what else um benicio del toro for armando i will send you the image that verifies this sure tell me i'm wrong here sure yeah i mean that's totally plausible that that is the (laughs) the inspiration or like the photo reference or whatever yeah it is also like so we're looking at this like cast of characters sheet it's kind of crazy to me that like some of these look like real people. Like there's no, no one looks like Brodsky, but someone definitely looks like Thursby and someone looks like Gil, but no one looks like Charlie, but someone definitely looks like Melba. You think like, no one looks like Charlie? You know Charlie? what I mean? No, I don't think Melba looks like Charlie. You I think, think Melba no looks, looks like, like a real Char- person. You think Charlie doesn't look like a real person? Not really. I was thinking he kind of looks like a like... Like a weirdly soft-lipped, like, 50s kind of, like, <laughs> movie star, you know? And then you just, like, put glasses on him. Because he is kind of handsome in a weird way. From a certain angle. Yeah. In the immortal words of either Maya or Val. Sure. I, yeah, just, like, some of them... Yeah, like, Ar- Armando I do look at, and I'm, like, literally Benicio Del Toro was, like, the photo reference for this person. But, like, some of them just look so much, like, more real, which is kind of funny. Sure. Because I don't think that any of them are supposed to be, like, photorealistic, and yet some of them, like, kind of weirdly are. Right, yes. There is definitely, like, like you said, like, Brodsky's, like, the the chief no-one-looks-like-this guy (laughs) compared to, like, the other people who, like, have maybe more of a reference. Yeah, and, like, yeah, Maya, like people look like her now but not in the 40s <laughs> right um and yeah no i don't i don't really have anything to say other than um if brodsky has a million fans i am one of them if brodsky has one fan it is me uh-huh. <laughs> and that's pretty much it <laughs> uh-huh i just like his like moral compass and his ethical code sure yeah you like his politics yeah absolutely awards awards uh there are some i seem to recall there some are nominations, i have at some least, here some it, in 2015 it gets nominated for best new series mm-hmm. doesn't win lumberjanes wins and then in sure. 2016 it win it wins best limited series uh ed brubaker gets nominated for best writer for the fade out velvet and criminal <laughs> good good nami <laughs> 
And then Elizabeth Breitweiser gets nominated for Best Colorist, which, yeah, swag. I mean, we didn't really talk about yep. the art, but or a little bit. We talked about the art, maybe. Good. But good, yeah. There I did, are I did some, read a... like, weird face. Like, yeah, you're making a realistic are. expression, and it makes your face look crazy. <laughs> there are... Um... <laughs> Not to like go in on uh, on lettering at length in two consecutive episodes, but I do like I so Phillips letters his own books. I find his fonts like kind of hard to read. Isn't there something about the fonts being like period fonts? Uh, maybe there is. I I always find his fonts like a little too thick and like a little difficult to read. And like yeah, I, I wouldn't be sad if he decided to collaborate with a letterer. Sure. Not that it's, like, bad, unreadable, anything like that. I don't know. They're just kind of not for me. And it it, it always stands out a little bit. But since we're talking about the art specifically and some, some occasionally slightly wonky things. Yeah, the, the three-tier uh, structure is back, which was kind of like a funny transition where <laughs> this is, this is going to be a thing that you're just like, sure. Um, but, like... He, I, I did like read him confirm it in this where he was basically like I always do a three tier panel layout when I'm working with Ed um, and saw no reason to change that for this one um, but it was funny like I didn't really notice it and then we read Velvet where I was like not that it I, I don't know maybe it does feel more dynamic to me but I was like oh it's not three <laughs> three tiers of panels on every single page yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's an interesting thing that he has decided to go for, and I guess I understand why, but I do think that like he has the capacity and it would lend a certain dynamism to not adhere to that formula in every book. Right. Sure. <laughs> My take. As you predicted. <laughs> I did read in the back of the deluxe edition that they gave Elizabeth Brightweiser no coloring direction at all, which I was like, Oh, interesting. (laughs) Like why, why not? Um, so, so she was free balling it, uh, basically the whole way through, um, colors are great. Good colorist cannot be denied. I thought that was interesting. I was curious about it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it looks really good. Yep. Sold a lot, especially number one. Didn't manage to beat out Orphan Black number one, but uh, <laughs> the first issue did sell over 40,000 copies, which is like a pretty solid like top 50 or probably like top 50 and it's not 50 as the kids say. Right. Which for an indie comic is like pretty dang good. Yeah. And it, and it was my understanding that there was not a ton of drop off either. That was something Brubaker mentions that it was a good hold. I think I, I there's always drop off after issue one. Yeah, like yeah. I don't think it was selling forty thousand right. the whole way through, but I do think that it probably settled to like a pretty high threshold between like fifteen and twenty thousand, and pretty much stayed there. Which is what his books tend to do. Like I have seen him as well. Like there was like a stretch of issues in Velvet. I think it was where like it was like six to twelve there was like never more than like a hundred issues variation month to month, which is demented. Right. (laughs) In terms of like literally the exact same 15,000 people are buying it every month. 
so so yeah it it does seem like his books kind of like find their audience and hold extremely steady the whole way through and then they also have like a pretty long shelf life in terms of like you wouldn't have to like look hard to find copies of the trades like they're always kind of around and and are movers for sure and shakers and shakers we can't eliminate uh eliminate uh, overlook what have you the shakers mm-hmm. uh- <laughs> give the shakers they're doing propers a fair shake Sure. Surely that will have to do. Is that towards me and towards you? Both. <laughs> um, thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, give five stars on whatever podcast listening methodology you utilize. And according to my calculations, uh, I was just using weird I words. I squint my eyes I in confusion. What's happening? I feel insane. Plug your shows. Oh, listen to not got the runs. Don't listen to got the runs. No, hold on. Don't say that. You plug this show on your other podcasts, right? Of course, of course, of course. But I, but mm-hmm. because I plug it so much that my mind instantly went to listen to got the runs when I think of plug a show. Uh, but of course, listen to High Floor, Low Ceiling. Listen to the Bevy of Heavy's back catalog. Not clear when we're going to do a new episode of that, but it'll come sometime probably. You should have a guest to kickstart things. Oh, interesting thought. <laughs> got the runs pod at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Got the runs pod on Twitter. Next week, we will be covering Kill or Be Killed. It's a longer set of issues, so be ready for that if you are reading along. Which I mm-hmm. am inventing someone who does. I uh, appeared. Oh, yes. Who can forget? <laughs> on an episode of the Canadian film podcast North of Normal to discuss uh, an adaptation of the Michel Rabaliati masterpiece, The Song of Roland, a Quebecois film called Paul à Québec. As we know, a long-time listeners of this podcast will recall that Paul is my best friend. So if uh, you would like to hear me discuss uh, Paul's big screen debut and disparage uh, Quebec drivers, you can listen to North of Normal uh, to get that conversation. Have you never, I don't know, maybe this is just like a thing that only I've heard, but I feel like practically everyone I know is like, if you see a crazy driver, look at the license plate and I'll bet you like $50 that it's a Quebec license plate, which is like a stereotype that I have had in the back of my head for a long time. And then like basically the first scene of Paul Quebec is that three cars drive like side by side on a two lane highway. So one of them is on the shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) They're all like honking their horns at each other and like leaning out the windows to like high five. Basically it's like one of the most demented (laughs) highway driving depictions I can imagine. And I was like, Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Anyways, fulsome discussion of that and uh, all other things, Paul at North of Normal. So go and check that out. Absolutely. And until next time, go listen to that. But until next time, to be, to be continued. continued. And Darth Vader's number three hobby is slaying rebels. And Darth Vader is also the number two selling comic in February 2015 behind Orphan Black number one. <laughs> and the four most popular pages currently on the Villains Wiki are... <laughs> <laughs>
Gopucci, who appears to be from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Jean Jacket from Nope, Huggy Wuggy from Poppy Playtime, and Gino, who I am now learning is the overarching antagonist of Fortnite. <laughs>